Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Maureen Conway, Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Institute's Economic Opportunities Program. And I am delighted to welcome everybody to today's conversation, which we've called Open to Good Jobs, Now is the Time to Improve Equity and Job Quality in Restaurant Work. This conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program ongoing Opportunity in America discussion series in which we explore the changing landscape of economic opportunity in the United States and the implications for individuals, families, and communities all across the country. I wanna note our deep appreciation for the support of the Ford Foundation, Prudential Financial, Walmart, the Cerna Foundation, and the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth for their support of the Opportunity in America series. Our work at the Economic Opportunities Program focuses on advancing a more just and inclusive economy by expanding individuals' opportunities to connect to quality work, to participate in business ownership, and to build the economic stability that's necessary to be able to pursue opportunity. Our current moment challenges this goal as we see record shattering levels of unemployment, widespread food insecurity, and the ongoing trauma of our racial divides. The intertwined challenges of racial and economic justice will be a part and parcel of our conversation today around restaurant work. And we have a fabulous set of people to talk about restaurant work today and how we can make it better so that workers, businesses, and communities can all thrive and enjoy good food. Um, so before we start, I wanna quickly review our technology. Uh, all attendees are muted. Um, closed caption is available. If you'd like to use that service, just click the button at the bottom of your screen. We welcome your questions. Please do use the Q&A box on the bottom of the Zoom window for questions or comments. Um, we also encourage you to tweet about this conversation if you would like to bring the conversation onto Twitter. Our hashtag is TalkOpportunity. Uh, if you have any technical issues during this webinar, you can chat with Tony Mastria or email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. This webinar is being recorded and will be shared uh, after the webinar via email and it will be posted on our website. Uh, and before I uh, talk to all the panelists, we have a special quick guest, uh, my colleague, uh, Corby Kummer, who runs the Institute's Food and Society program, is joining us briefly to share just a few words on his program's work to assemble a guide and uh, to really kind of promote um, practices that are gonna help uh, keep workers safe in the age of COVID-19. So Corby, thanks for joining us and share uh, about what you're up to. Thank you, Maureen. Maureen is our leader at the Aspen Institute in everything to do with equity and job quality. And so I was very delighted as the executive director of Aspen's Food and Society Program to get to tell you all about our Safety First Worker Safety Initiatives. Uh, we were lucky enough to get support from the Lorium Tisch Illumination Fund and incredible guidance from the New York City Department of Health uh, the Centers for Disease Control, and many of the organizations, James Beard Foundation, World Central Kitchen, and Off Their Plate, to assemble what we hope is an authoritative and really practical and useful guide for back-of-house workers to keep themselves safe, 
uh, to understand how to keep managers and customers safe. And in fact, right now, every week we are having meetings about server safety and diner safety. And we're hoping to formulate a diner code of conduct that World Central Kitchen and James Beard Foundation and our partners will ask all restaurants to get the diners to sign on to <clears throat> when they enter the restaurant and make reservations. So, uh, and we'll have a lot about server safety. Uh, we're very far along in that. We'll be releasing those in the next two or three weeks. Um, and the work that everyone on this call does, on this webinar does, it's so inspiring to us. And we are here to serve all of you. So thank you, Maureen, and I look forward to all of your remarks. Great. Thanks, Corby. Um, and uh, we're really excited about that guide. I'll just also say that in addition to being able to find it on the Food and Society website, we've also included it in our Job Quality Tools library uh, with all our other um, resources to promote job quality and worker safety um, in particularly the age of COVID-19. So um, wonderful resource. Thank you, Corby. Um, and now I'm really thrilled to introduce our panelists and start today's conversation. I'm just going to quickly uh, say names and titles. We made their bios available on our, on our website. Um, and I really just want to quickly get into the conversation. So today we're joined by uh, Nikki uh, M.G. Cole, National Policy Campaign Director at One Fair Wage, uh, Saru Jayaraman, President One Fair Wage and Director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley, Mutale Kanyanta, Owner Locals Food in Brooklyn, New York, um, and Dan Simons, Co-Owner of Farmers Restaurant Group. So welcome to you all. And um, Saru, let me just jump in and start with you. Um, You've been working on wages and working conditions for uh, restaurant workers for quite a while. Um, uh, in preparing for this event, I couldn't help but think back to the event we did back in 2013 when um, we talked uh, about, you know, sort of the low tipped minimum wage of 2.13 an hour and so many people in our audience were shocked that it was so low, that it hadn't gone up for over 20 years. It's still so low, it still hasn't gone up. Um, but since then, you've uh, founded One Fair Wage and you've just been doing incredible work. Um, so just telling, tell us a little bit about sort of what led you to found, found, found One Fair Wage uh, and what you've, been, what you've been working on. Thanks, Maureen. And thank you to the Aspen Institute for putting this on and to Nikki and Dan and Mutale for joining the conversation. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to lift up these issues. Um, I think given the moment and the um, uh, just the just the incredible demand that the country is making to reckon with racial equity and its history, its long history of structural racism, I think it's really important to understand the history of this issue as well that we're going to spend some time talking about. Um, so the restaurant industry has been, had been before the pandemic, one of the nation's largest and fastest growing industries, but unfortunately was the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States. Um, there are great employers in this group that weren't part of that group, but 
on the whole, the restaurant industry has been the lowest paying employer. And the data and research has shown that that has been due to the money, power, and influence of a trade lobby called the National Restaurant Association, which uh, has represented the chains. And if you look at its history, its history does date back all the way to emancipation when it first demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves not pay them anything and have them live entirely on tips. Tips at the time were new to America. They had just come from Europe. In feudal Europe, tips uh, really developed as an extra or a bonus that aristocrats gave to serfs and vassals, but always on top of a wage. The idea of tipping as wage replacement was mutated in the United States to become a replacement for wages as a result of slavery. After slavery, um, the restaurant lobby wanted the right to hire black people, mostly black women at the time, actually, and not pay them anything and have them live entirely on tips, which, again, was not the way tips were originally intended. And that became law in 1938 as part of the New Deal, when everybody in the country got the right to a minimum wage for the first time, except for groups of black workers, farm workers, domestic workers, and tipped restaurant workers who were mostly black women at the time were left out. By the way, uh, the other groups left out at the time were incarcerated workers um, because of an exception to the 13th Amendment that allows for slavery in the case of incarceration. So they can be paid nothing while they work inside. People with disabilities, uh, youth in many states. And so you see this large exception to the minimum wage largely based on race and our history of structural racism in the United States. So fast forward to today, um, today, prior to the pandemic, you had a workforce of millions of tipped workers across the country, 70% of whom are women, overwhelmingly working not in fine dining, but in casual restaurants like IHOPs and Denny's and Applebee's, struggling with the highest rates of economic instability of any industry and literally the highest rate of, of sexual harassment of any industry in the United States. These were mostly single mothers struggling to feed their families on tips. And we used to call it living tip to mouth. You know, you would, many of these women who worked in IHOP and Denny's would tell us, I feed my kids based on the tips that I get in my shift. I eat the family meal. That's how I get my food. I eat the family meal that they provide prior to the shift. And I work two or three jobs. I live in my car. That was the struggling. That was like the basic level of survivor survival prior to the pandemic. And like you said, we were making actually some progress on this issue. We won the issue in DC. We won the issue in Maine. We won the issue in Michigan. Voters overwhelmingly agree that people should be paid a full minimum wage. But in every case, the Restaurant Association reversed these wins. It wasn't until July of last year that we won the issue in the US House of Representatives um, that we were starting to see some momentum for change in New York and other states. And then the pandemic hit, 10 million restaurant workers across the country lost their jobs. And we've seen an overwhelmingly horrific experience for workers, particularly when it comes to unemployment insurance. Workers across the country are saying, we can't access unemployment insurance because we're being told our sub-minimum wage of two or three dollars plus tips is too low to meet the minimum threshold to qualify in our state for unemployment insurance. We've heard that from thousands of workers, particularly workers of color, who tend to work in more casual restaurants where there are cash tips. Their cash tips are not counted. Often their bosses didn't report those tips. And so thousands and thousands of workers of color are telling us, I can't access unemployment insurance because I earned cash tips or because I was off the books. 
and therefore I can't get benefits or because they're telling me my $3 wage plus tips was too little to qualify. So there's enormous frustration about this issue. And I do just want to point out two things. There's some really great signals of hope. <laughs> One is that there always were seven states that had gotten rid of this system. California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska. Workers in those states have had a very, very different experience during the pandemic than the workers in the 43 states. They are getting unemployment insurance measured on a $15 wage in many of those states plus tips. Um, they are not having as many problems accessing unemployment insurance because they didn't rely entirely on tips for their income. Um, and those states, I want to point out, had California has the largest and fastest growing restaurant industry in the country. So none of the chains that fought these issues in the past uh, were actually suffering in those states. In fact, they were all growing faster in California than the rest of the country. So um, small business was growing faster. There is a hopeful kind of pathway forward that we've seen in these other states. And now there's a hopeful path pathway forward across the country. Now we've seen with the pandemic, just a beautiful willingness, dialogue between employers and workers to really come together and see if we couldn't reinvent the restaurant industry, reimagine the way we do things everywhere, not just in those seven states, because we've seen that what, was, what existed prior to the pandemic was not tenable and we need to reimagine what we're doing together. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Saru. And Dan, let me come to you. Uh, you own a restaurant and you've been, uh, you know, sort of living a little closer to a, a lot of this. Um, and you're well known for uh, in the in the district and the DC area for founding farmers. Um, uh, but we have a national audience. So maybe tell a little bit about your your restaurant and just kind of sort of what it's about and 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 and, you know, give folks sort of a sense of it a little bit, um, and then talk a little bit about sort of how you've thought about what are um, sort of sustainability practices, if you will, as you apply them to your to your workforce, how you think about um, designing jobs. Sure. Thanks, Maureen. And thanks to the Aspen Institute. And thanks for having me. I think, you know, conversations like this are uh, so important. And I think, you know, as Saru said, in this moment, you know, the one thing that that is always important in, in any moment is communication. Um, and I think on, on the topics that we're covering today, folks that sort of traditionally think that they are opposed to one another, you know, if, if we can remind people that communication includes listening, ideally twice as much as, as we talk, that there's a lot of common ground here. And that, you know, I may be a restaurant owner and someone else may be a worker uh, advocate and yet, I'm a worker advocate, and yet, uh, you know, a, a, a worker advocate may also have experienced restaurant work. Like, there's a lot of common ground. So, you know, for me, um, I've got seven restaurants. Uh, probably the most notable thing is that uh, the restaurants are majority owned by American family farmers. And so um, we've got our own distillery. We have our own bakery. We cook from scratch. We run our company. We have a phrase internally through the eyes of the farmer. So we built our company specifically to advocate on behalf of American family farmers. We advocate, we buy their product, we're a market maker for their product. We try to influence our customers on where else they shop. Uh, and we try to influence, frankly, our whole industry on where they buy and the impact of, of what they buy. So, you know, for us, that sort of through the eyes of the farmer, 
speaks to how we run the whole company. And, you know, another way you could say that is conscious capitalism. Um, I, I really just, so there's no doubt about where I stand, you know, like the pure, unbridled, unregulated, unrestricted capitalism is a big, serious problem. And anybody who tells you it, it isn't is both probably really rich and a liar. And so I think about conscious capitalism as a remarkably good force for change and a powerful force for change. We need jobs and we need an economy. We just need it fair. Uh, or even how about just a bit more fair, right? So um, we, by caring about our community and caring about American family farmers, we care about the planet. We do all sorts of sustainability things. You know, if this was a webinar on green issues, I could go on and on and on. Um, but in our company, I think because of the culture of the company and what's in our DNA, you know, putting mission over profit as a goal to generate long-term profit, it works. And I think we're an example that that recipe can work. You don't always have to try to maximize your profit every quarter at someone else's expense. You can actually do what farmers do, which is, you know, play the long game, the multi-generational game. And, you know, part of sustainability, I think, is a company that is still here tomorrow. And if you want to be here tomorrow and you want to be here next year, you might want to treat your diners and treat your workers and treat your business in an equal way. And those are sort of the three legs of the stool that I see. And so I try to guide any of our conversations to that uh, balanced approach, because if we just take one of those legs of the stool and forget the other two, you know, a wobbly stool is pretty useless for anybody who tries to, to sit in it. Um, with our company, we have done incredibly well with uh, gender, gender parity, pay parity, uh, people of color in uh, positions of power. The reason I bring that up is not just today's moment, but when you want to end up having uh, fair and equal wages, fair and equal treatment for people, uh, if you can get people up the ladder, who represent the people that they manage, you end up with much better dialogue. I happen to be in major cities with my restaurants. And so our tip workers really earn quite a good living. And I think aren't exactly necessarily indicative of some of the problems that we might talk about today. But I think that to find out if your workers are happy, they have to have a voice. And for your workers to have a voice, they really need managers who look like them and who have lived their experience because that's what empowers the voice. We've done incredibly well in our company with women, women of color, um, and we haven't done as well with men of color in management positions. So we still have ways to go. We have things to work on. Um, and, and I bring that up to say, you know, again, it's communication. It's real looking in the mirror. It's saying where we're doing well or where we can go forward. So thanks for giving me the chance to introduce myself a bit and I'll turn it back to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And I think that was that was really great. And, you know, it's interesting, you brought up this sort of three legs, the kind of the workers, the investors, the customers, um, you know, like you have to make these things work together. And I think Mutala, you have a similar sort of, uh, maybe even a broader multi stakeholder way of thinking about your your business and your your goals for your business. Um, so uh, you're trying to sort of blend uh, different businesses with grocery, cafe, community space. Uh, can you say just a little bit about why um, from a business and a community perspective, you kind of um, were thinking about this sort of mix of business lines within the, within the space you're, you're picturing? 
Sure. Thank you very much for having me on the conversation. Um, I'm a 30-year resident of a community called Fort Greene in Brooklyn. Um, in the time period that I've lived there, it's um, transitioned to being um, a very affluent community. Um, it's gone from being a, a blue-collar community to a white-collar community. Um, the location that my store is at, I'm actually the property owner as well. Um, the location the store is at is actually on the cusp of these two um, communities which are drifting further and further apart. So my mission in opening the business um, in terms of being a, a person who's involved in the community was to try and make um, fresh food, um, non-processed food accessible um, to the predominantly working class community who are across the street from where the business is. Um, up until that point, um, you know, Fort Greene had been a food desert and once it started to transition to being a little bit more affluent, the grocery stores or the um, small store um, restaurants that were being designed were for um, the more affluent um, members of our community. So I thought that there was a need to rectify that um, because that also had an impact on um, the health outcomes of that community. Um, I also wanted to have a community space that was affordable. Um, as an entrepreneur, my decision for that was the idea that um, I wasn't going to be able to compete with the fine dining restaurants that were in the neighborhood because I, um, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm not a restaurateur. I see this business as a food business. Um, so I wanted to create a space where um, overlooked chefs who are um, diverse. So whether it's women, whether it's queer um, chefs or whether it's um, black chefs would have a space in a community that was known for having really great restaurants. Um, I also wanted to, you know, I, I had to figure out, I own the building, but I still have to pay a mortgage. Um, and I needed to figure out how to create multiple incomes to support um, the mortgage that would have to be paid out of commercial space. Um, so I decided to also um, bring in the access of um, CSAs to the members of our community. And I'm still really building that um, what that will look like. But the idea for me was how do we connect um, our community who don't go um, to um, the green markets to the um, food access to fresh food um, um, from farmers. So that was really the idea for um, setting up the business both as an entrepreneur and as a member of the community. Great, thank you. And Nikki, I'm gonna uh, come to you. You've had a long career in um, restaurant work uh, and now you, uh, you spend your time organizing restaurant workers and we've heard uh, some different perspectives on different kinds of restaurants and so tell, uh, and, and different kinds of worker experiences. Um, tell us a little bit about what you see as kind of the upsides and the downsides of working in restaurants and, and what you're hearing from workers now. Hi everyone, thank you for having me join you today. It's a pleasure to be a part of this important and innovative uh, thought circle here. Um, again, my name is Nikki and I've worked in hospitality for almost 20 years. Uh, my heart is racing a little bit every time I have to talk about my experience um, in the hospitality industry because it's more than half of my life, it's the majority of my life, and then I've spent the last uh, 10 to 12 years uh, advocating 
for changes in the hospitality industry. Um, so a little bit about the upside in my personal experience in the hospitality industry. Um, you don't work in hospitality for 20 years if you don't love it. Um, it runs in my family. So it's, you know, a tradition. My grandmother um, was a hostess and a server and then worked in hotels and ran restaurants inside of her hotels and she had bed and breakfast. So just growing up, I was inoculated in being in beautiful places, taking care of people, having fun events, you know, creating ambiance. That's what, that's what I love. Um, I, I love being in beautiful spaces and serving and talking about delicious, incredible food and working in the hospitality industry is one of, as Dan was talking about, one of the coolest places where like you're on the forefront and the cutting edge um, of what's happening and Mutali too, about what's happening in food, right? So you get to see firsthand working in the hospitality industry, how incredible dishes are made. Um, I know how to make incredible food because of my experience in the hospitality industry, being able to cook that kind of gourmet stuff at home, you know, that just most people don't have unless they take a class or what have you. So um, just also the experience of community, right? From um, when you have regular guests all the time, people that you get to take care of, um, that you see in your neighborhood walking around. It's just, you know, restaurants working in hospitality, it's just such a big and important part of American culture. Um, the melting pot that is American culture um, and getting to live that and practice it. So those are some of the, the upsides, the best upsides of, of working in the hospitality industry. Also, it's an industry where everybody works. Everybody works, whether you have a high school degree or you don't have one. You could have a PhD or not have anything. You, you know, like it's, it's a place and a melting pot really of opportunity for everyone. That's what's really beautiful about it. Um, challenges though, the downsides. Why have I spent 10 years organizing? Um, I experienced so much sexual harassment and assault in the restaurant industry. Um, just on a regular basis. And it, you know, working in restaurants was the first thing that I did, right? As a 15 year old girl. So you grow up young ladies, you grow up, um, in that environment of it being normal for men that you work with customers to touch your arm, smack you on the butt, call you sweetie, um, tip you more if you if you're more flirtatious, you know, um, get better shifts or better sections if you are um, silent and cooperative um, with management and not, you know, raise things. You, you learn that, right? And then um, for me, it um, led me <clears throat> to be in, in, in dangerous situations where I thought that was normal, right? Um, and so over my lifetime, after being assaulted, um, I think about it all the time. Why, 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 <laughs> um, and how, and I just keep over and over coming back to oppression. 
um, and the oppression of myself, my people, yeah, of myself, my people. And so I keep, I, I've always come back to the culture that exists when you, when you work on a sub minimum wage in Washington DC is like $3 and 33 cents. I think it went up to four forty-four. I think, um, recently and, and is going to go up to $5. Um, but basically when you work on that in a city where rent is for a studio apartment, 13 to $1,500, um, <laughs> or higher, and not to mention transportation costs, the cost to eat. If you have a child, um, utilities and bills on top of that, savings, if you ever want to have fun, right? You, it, it, it puts you in a situation where you literally just have to work all the time. And even when you work all the time, somehow for me, I was always in a position of still juggling my bills. Could never feel security that I was able to pay things. Um, I was always juggling and something that I had to let go. I let go my repaying college loans. Now I have bad credit, right? Um, let go paying other credit card bills. Just things started impacting me financially, right? So I felt like I'm never gonna get ahead. No matter how hard I work, I'm not gonna get ahead or I keep trying, I just keep working as hard as possible. Maybe it'll happen one day, but you know, years and years had passed or I was literally in the same situation, never getting ahead, never having any savings. So that level of oppression and self-doubt um, is a part for me that was really challenging working in the industry. Um, men have the same thing, right? Working in the industry, if you're a tipped person and in this society, if you're a man, you're supposed to be a provider, you're supposed to be powerful, but you are stuck in this situation, oftentimes where you cannot get ahead, where your race or your accent or the way that you look um, determines whether you're going to get a promotion or move from being a bar back or a busser into a bartender or something into management, right? There's a lot of stereotypes that, um, seep into our, our minds and our narrative that um, impact who we think we are and also who employers think we are and make their hiring and promotion decisions accordingly. Um, that level of, of oppression, shaping, right? Um, how somebody feels about themselves. And when you work in a situation like that, um, and you oftentimes um, don't have regular political education about the system, or how you can be an active democratic person and effectuate your situation, or if you don't come from a public or a private school that teaches you, right, that you are worth something and you have power and you can advocate and, and organize and vote, right, in order to make a difference or negotiate, right, then you have the mentality of, I take what I'm given and I'm gonna give that back out. I'm gonna give that pain back out to other people because I'm angry and I don't know how to channel it. And it, and, it, and, it, and it manifests in all different types of ways. Verbal abuse um, in the restaurant industry, um, again, sexual harassment and assault in the industry, um, 
uh, lack of, of paid sick days or basic dignified benefits that a lot of other industries have for people. Um, so the cumulative effect of the lack of basic human benefits plus the culture that comes from the imbalance of power with low wages is, uh, is the most challenging. And now that the COVID pandemic is happening, I'm hearing that more and more from workers, like their stories of what they're fed up with. They're hearing the same things. They're frustrated that they're not able to get unemployment insurance because they're making a sub-minimum wage. They're frustrated that they're not able to uh, take advantage of paid family leave or paid sick days because they didn't have those benefits and their employers are not paying them out. Um, people are scared and frustrated and angry right now. Workers are being called back to work in some places where there are no safety protocols or training about what's going to be different. Um, workers are walking out on the job because of this. Um, they're, they're coming to legal clinics. They're trying to learn their rights and figure out what to do in these situation and reimagine. They're going out to protest um, on the streets right now because they're angry um, about what's happening structurally, racially, economically, health-wise in this country right now. Great. Nikki, thank you so much for sharing all that. That was really amazing. And I think, um, you know, I, I will just say personally, right, like I, worked in the restaurant industry, but it was 30 years ago, right? And at this point, I can uh, remember it, you know, with a little rose-colored glass on it, but you just reminded me of all the things that were also really hard about it um, and the way it, uh, so I, I just really appreciate you sharing all of that and and kind of unpacking sort of that full experience. And 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 it's just, you know, um, it's it's, <laughs> and it's just still shocking that um, how much hasn't changed. Um, it's really, really shocking. Um, and Dan, I'm, I'm coming to you next. And you know, um, I, I realize I'm looking at the clock and I know we, we need, we ha I can see there's lots of questions. That's what I'm looking at over here that are already coming in. Um, and you know, and I wanted to ask you though a little bit about safety, right? How you're keeping your workers safe. But I also, it would be, you know, and obviously this is very top of mind for us now with um, the COVID-19 epidemic and sort of how we keep workers safe. But I also wanna ask you sort of what your practices are for keeping workers safe in terms of, in terms of harassment and all those issues that, that Nikki brought up. I, I remember when I was a server, I was really, really lucky a couple of times that I had a manager that, you know, rescued me basically. Um, and so I'm just curious how you're sort of dealing with that issue in your staff practices as well. So, you know, first I want to say, you know, Nikki, I hear you. I hear your words. I feel what you're saying. And um, nobody should go through that. And, you know, I wish it really meant something for me to say, I'm sorry you went through that. But what really would mean something is if I said, not only am I sorry that you went through that, I'm sorry lots of people go through it and we all need to work together to change it, right? And it's not gonna fix it overnight. There's nothing we're gonna fix overnight, but we can sure as hell make things better tomorrow than today and the next day and the next day. And 
you know, so much of this conversation is about wage and wage structure. And let me just say, I think that's important and we should address it, but it doesn't matter how much money you pay someone per hour. If their boss doesn't look like them, right? Doesn't think that they are fundamentally equal, doesn't listen to them. And it's the kind of person who assaults and defends and ignores, then just adjusting wages doesn't solve that. So I do think that solutions are about recipes and creating uh, confidence in someone's wage and their income. So they're not vulnerable or victim related or, in, or so vulnerable with just wages is one step towards more empowerment. But I hear that story, those, those, those life stories from Nikki. And I think to myself, if her boss was a woman, would it have gone down like that? If her boss was a woman of color, would it have gone down like that? And I'm not letting all women off the hook and I'm not letting all people of color off the hook. But if we just go with the data and the statistics, the stories that we hear would happen a lot less. And so what can we do? And I know what am I doing in my restaurants? Your question, Maureen, of what am I doing to keep my workers safe? I'm ensuring that the people who are in power are connected to the workers. I don't know of a better way to do it. And so, you know, I see questions in this chat stream. What can we do to help workers? What can restaurateurs do in their company? Promote people who look like your workers into management and leadership positions. And when you do that, I'll tell you what happens. Sexual harassment claims go down. Claims of discrimination go down. More talent rises to the top. And all of a sudden you think it's hard to find restaurant managers, but what you realize is you're only looking at one section of the population because you didn't know how to look at someone earning X dollars or with X background or X skin color. You didn't know how to see them as a leader because people hire in their own image. And so you need a mentor that doesn't look like you and you need to have a courage to promote people who don't look like you so they can hire and promote people who look like them. So I can give you a whole list of what I'm doing. We actually released out to the public uh, our 50 page manual of you know, pandemic related safety and how we're using electrostatic sprayers and how the training that we're doing for our staff and how we're balancing calling people back when they get paid more on employment and they want to know the environment's safe and how much are they going to earn at work when the restaurants are barely doing any sales. So I could go on and on about what we're doing, but I think we, I've put that information out there and I'm happy to you know, share that link to that document and it can help other restaurants you know, do things in a safe way. But I think mental safety, mental health, and the safety of a culturally safe work environment, essentially work on that. And that solves the physical safety in so many ways. So I know time's limited, but that's, that's what was going through my mind when I heard Nikki. Yeah, and I can see Saru wants to get in here, so I will go to you next. But I also want to say, say a word or two about High Road Kitchens as well. <laughs> sure. Well, I just want to, Dan, you're being humble and you're not lifting up another great thing that you're doing right now, which is uh, changing your wage structure. So I, I do want to uplift Dan because Dan was somebody who uh, we weren't always on the same side of this issue and we we really talked over the last year as he said it's about communication we got to know each other we learned from one another and um, Dan on top of all the safety uh, and 
and promoting people of color and women, which is so critical. On top of that, he is also moving to pay people a full minimum wage with tips on top. And I do want to say it is absolutely essential to promote more people of color and women. But on the issue of sexual harassment, our years and years and years of research have shown that the number one thing that actually does reduce sexual harassment is making sure to pay everybody a full minimum wage so that a mostly female workforce of tipped workers is not reliant on tips as a portion of their base wage. In fact, the data is so strong on that. Um, the seven states, I'll say them again because people asked, as we're saying in the chat, it went so fast, California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska that have required a full minimum wage with tips on top have one half the rate of sexual harassment in the industry as the 43 states with a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. And the reason for that, the reason for that is that in most of the country, when you have a sub-minimum wage, 70% of tipped workers are women. And as I said, they're mostly women in, working in casual restaurants with their single moms feeding their kids on tips. Um, they are told in large part by managers. And unfortunately, we've heard this from both male and female managers. I'm sure Nikki can speak to this too, that say dress more sexy, show more cleavage, wear tighter clothing so that you can make more money in tips. Because as long as tips is your primary source of income, you are going to have to kind of sell yourself. And there's just reams and reams and reams, years of data now that shows that unfortunately tipping and service is not correlated. Um, that unfortunately tipping is correlated with the gender and race of the server. Um, if you're a woman, you make more money in tips if you touch the person or allow yourself to be touched. If you're a man, you make less money uh, if you allow your, if you touch, but you always make more money as a man, uh, especially a white man as a server even if you're working alongside an equally competent, equally good server who's a woman of color, she will always make less money in tips. And so generally just having the portion of the base wage be reliant on tips is subjecting people like Nikki to the biases of customers and to harassment. And we know that moving to a full minimum wage cuts that in half in fact. And when you couple that with the thing that Dan, things that Dan is talking about, promoting people of color, um, that's the ideal situation. I want to respond to one of the comments, the questions that came up. Um, uh, I, I see there's a restaurant owner with us who said, you know, I can't raise wages for the front. That would create disparity with the back. And I want to share one of the biggest reasons why employers and workers are coming together and aligning like Dan and us and many others, actually. There are many other restaurant owners around the country that we weren't in conversation with prior to the pandemic that we're suddenly in conversation with. Um, and it's because as we're reinventing what restaurants look like, there's a desire not only to get rid of these biases of tipping that we just talked about, there's also a desire to create more equity between front and back. We got a law passed in Congress in 2018 that says, if you pay everybody the full minimum wage, tips can be shared with all non-management employees in the restaurant. So just for those that are not in, steeped in the industry, in states that have a sub-minimum wage, tips cannot be shared with kitchen staff. But we passed a law in Congress that said, if you do pay everybody a full minimum wage, including servers, tips can be shared with the kitchen staff and, and there can be more equity between front and back. And the beautiful vision, ideal world that we're now working on with many restaurants, including Dan, is this world in which the front and the back are equally diverse because 
until now, the front and many fine dining places had been mostly white, back had been mostly people of color. But if you both diversify and create one wage and tip sharing, you allow for cross training between front and back, you allow for a more unified team between front and back, um, you, you actually can afford it as a restaurant owner because you are bringing up the front, but then equalizing the incomes by sharing the tips. So for those that don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm really happy to share like even financial data and tools that we've created that show how this is possible and profitable. But the most important thing I wanted to lift up that Maureen mentioned is that we've not only created the tools to help employers figure this path out, we've now created grants and cash programs. So we worked with Governor Newsom in California to launch what's called High Road Kitchens, where we're providing anywhere from fifteen dollars to $25,000 cash grants to restaurants to act that commit to going to uh, higher wages, greater equity, and they rehire, them, rehire workers and repurpose themselves as community kitchens feeding thousands. And now we're about to launch this in New York and Detroit and Boston, where we, and, and actually providing it to restaurants in other parts of the country where we're able to provide up to $30,000, $35,000 to restaurants, cash grants, not loans, to restaurants that want to work with us to move to a one-wage, tip-sharing, more equitable system. Now is the moment as people are kind of reinventing from scratch to think about an entirely new compensation model. Great. Um, Mutali, I want to come to you and just ask you a quick question, and then we're going to do our, our lightning round. Um, we're sort of working questions in as we as we go along here. But I saw some questions about, you know, restaurant associations and, you know, what's wrong with them. Um, uh, and you became involved with um, RAISE, and I was just wondering if you wanted to, restaurants advancing industry standards and employment, and I was wondering if you just wanted to talk about what you were looking for a restaurant association and, and what's the conversation among sort of restaurant owners who are involved in, in RAISE, if you could just So as I mentioned before, when I um, initially um, set up my business or was thinking about setting up my business, I, I didn't really, I knew that I wanted to pay people a livable wage, but I didn't know what that looked like. And that's how I was introduced to RAISE um, through um, uh, somebody who works there. And basically for myself, it gives you the tools as a restaurant owner to model your business and see, um, you know, what you would need to tweak in order to be able to achieve that. Um, they also give you tools to basically reduce racial inequity within your business, as well as um, to reduce sexual harassment. Um, the other thing that was also important was when I, um, when I talked to my business savvy friends about opening a restaurant, they all told me why it wouldn't work with me um, trying to pay people um, a livable wage. Um, and in becoming a member of RAISE, I basically found peers who, um, peers who are working at the same um, problem. So there's a community to dig into and kind of ask questions, um, as well as a community um, where we've decided that there needs to be a new day. Um, uh, one of the, the, the things that comes to my head whenever I think about um, our current political social climate, um, in the 1800s, we used to think it was okay for children to work in factories. Um, we've built a food system in this country um, that has basically baked in an underclass and trapped an underclass within that system. And these are predominantly mothers. Um, and it, it shows a lack of investment in our future. Um, I just 
in good conscience, I don't think you could have a business in which you need to oppress your workers in order for you to, to make a living. It just doesn't make sense to me. So um, Ray's was that rainbow that I saw um, in terms of, you know, the, um, we, we're very committed in creating this as a reality. So we work on local levels um, with politicians, um, state level, as well as federal level. Um, so I feel really connected to something which five years ago when I first um, decided this is, what I, this is what I wanted to do for my, the rest of my life seemed very, very abstract. Um, and so I kind of, I think it's a really exciting time to reinvent our industry. Um, we, we can, you know, we can definitively say what is wrong with it. And there are solutions out there to create an equitable um, um, community and also um, to make the restaurant industry a profession. You know, one out of two Americans has have worked in that restaurant industry. Why do we not give um, restaurant workers that respect? Um, you know, why is this not a profession that you you could be in all your life and be able to feed your kids and send your kids to college? And you know, why why is that not a reality? So part of my being involved with Raise was to kind of answer those questions for myself and find a pathway and to create um, a viable business that can have that baked into its, um, its, into its DNA. Yeah, I really appreciate that, you know, and when we spoke of, I, you know, I just appreciated how you, you, you weren't willing to accept sort of the trade-off that we hear so often of, you know, well, to have a viable business, I can't afford to pay people a living wage. You sort of said, well, if you can't pay people a living wage, you shouldn't be in business, <laughs> which I really appreciated that. Um, okay, so we have a, a great audience here with us of people who care about workers and issues of job quality and equity and opportunity. And we are at our lightning round. So I'm going to go quick, Mutali, Nikki, Dan, Saru. What is one thing that uh, you want this audience to, to keep in mind if they want to be part of sort of making a better future for restaurant workers? So Mutali, you first, one thing quick. Um, we live in a consumer society. You need to go and spend in places and with organizations and businesses that have the same values that you do. You need to, um, wherever you're spending your money, you need to ask them about how they treat their workers. Um, you know, if, um, if they have respect for the environment. Um, so, you know, every day you go out, you make that decision um, okay. and you support the businesses that are or aren't. So that's my Great. one thing. Okay, vote with your dollars. Nikki? Um, I'm just uh, copying and pasting in the chat uh, here the video for, I'm sorry, the movie that we made, uh, Waging Change by Abby Ginsberg, award woman, uh, a woman award woman winning filmmaker. Um, I encourage everyone to watch the film. It's an hour. Um, this will really illuminate more deeply for you the story of our fight, the history of this, and what's going on right now. And um, I encourage you to not only watch it, but share it with other people. Have a watch party on Zoom or at your house and engage dialogue about it. And then vote and call your representatives and tell them that you support this in your state. 
Great. Awesome. And um, I believe we have a link to that um, on our website. And also, I think she's having a showing tonight, right? At seven, there's like a one you, everybody can participate in. So I think there's links on our website if you, if you want to do that. Um, that's great. Dan? Um, I would say, you know, to remember to take into consideration that it's easy to kind of champion and shout about an ideological vision. Um, or about a solution or the way things should be. But if it doesn't connect back to a business model that works, it's a waste of time. And so the issues are always more complicated than just do this. And so try to encourage the con an actual conversation, not so much what do we want, but what do we want and how does it get paid for without just kind of ideological assumptions of we'll just raise prices or an assumption that business owners just always raise money. Restaurants have never had less money than today. So the question still always needs to be where does the money come from and how is it sustainable and what is a fair way for a business to use that money to line up with the principles I think of the consumer and then spend your money with the businesses whose principles line up with yours. Great. And sorry. Great. So um, exactly to Dan's point, we actually have, as I mentioned, like reams and reams and reams of business modeling to help businesses figure this out. And so what consumer, what if you're, I think there's a different answer for depending on who you are. If you're an employer listening to this, please be in touch. We've got a whole training and technical assistance program uh, with, as I said, financial tools. We've actually got this great spreadsheet where you can input how many workers, your menu prices, and figure out how you might be able to move to a full minimum wage with tip sharing uh, profitably. Um, and then we've put together this roadmap to reimagine restaurants. It's, I put it in the chat. Um, and it actually features case studies of how many restaurants right now are moving to this new model during the pandemic. So if you're a restaurant, please talk to us. If you're a consumer, um, I think absolutely what everybody said, encourage your favorite restaurant to not just do the right thing, but talk to us. Because once they talk to us, we can actually help them not only figure it out with the tools, but we might even be able to provide them with cash grants to make the changes, to help them make the changes. Um, but as a consumer, you are also a, a resident of this country. I'm not even going to say citizen because everybody who lives here does have the opportunity to speak up. And so you go to onefairwage.com and sign that petition so that we can push for a level playing field for great employers like Dan and Mutale. They shouldn't have to do it on their own. It should be just the law as it is in California, Oregon, Washington, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska. Everybody should be required to pay a full minimum wage. I'm just gonna close by saying, after all, what was the point of having a minimum wage in this country in 1938 if not the idea that nobody should be paid less than that. So let's go back to the idea of a minimum wage, pay it, let tips be shared, let's create more equality and responding to the call of the country, let's address structural racism and gender inequity at every level from getting rid of a history of slavery, a legacy of slavery, to addressing, as Dan said, racial and gender inequalities and who's managing and who's in the front of the house to just all of us as consumers and as people demanding this kind of equity in every aspect of our lives, including when we eat out. 
Wonderful. That was fabulous. Um, thank you all. You got a ton of information across in, um, uh, in a record amount of time. Uh, so I really appreciate everybody being with us today. Um, many thanks to my Aston Institute colleagues who've sent me many questions in our chat that I know we don't have the time to dig into now, but I think we've touched on a lot of them. And I think that there's a lot of um, additional resources, um, be in touch with uh, One Fair Wage, with um, Raise, with other kinds of organizations. Um, we'll put some more links on our website if you're looking for more information. And as I mentioned, we'll be sending out the recording of this, um, of this webinar as well. Uh, so thank you everybody for joining the conversation, for your active participation and for your concern about these issues. Um, Hope I will see uh, some of you in the chat room tonight watching um, Waging Change. And um, uh, please do take a moment to respond to our quick feedback survey at the close of this webinar or send us an email at eop.aspeninstitute.org and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you and we hope you'll join us again for another Opportunity in America series. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.